Hey everybody, Editor Nicole dropping in briefly to note that while we do discuss some homophobic language that occurs in the film with Nail and I, we didn't talk about the almost antiquated racist slur that is used once in the film. Not because we didn't notice it, because how could you not notice it, but because we didn't feel equipped to discuss it in its historical and geographic context as three white people in the U.S. in 2021, rather than by POC in England in 1969. But if you decide to watch this movie, we wanted you to be aware that it's in there. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to Movie Go Round, the podcast that rotates between different themes every single week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is the beginning of a new rotation. It's new to two. Hello everybody, my name is Brett Stewart. Joining me on another brand new rotation of Movie Go Round, Nicole Davis, how are you? (sighs) Everything is better. (laughs) (laughs) everything is better in the world it's getting there it's not perfect there's so much there's so much work to do but everything is is just a little bit better today (laughs) and we don't even need to tell people when we recorded they can just infer they'll figure it out (laughs) david luzader how are you so there I am in Sri Lanka, formerly Ceylon, about three o'clock in the morning, looking for 1,000 brown M&Ms to fill a brandy glass, or Ozzy wouldn't go on stage that night. So Jeff Beck pops his head round the corner and mentions there's a little sweet shop on the edge of town. So we go, and it's closed. So there's me and Keith Moon and David Crosby breaking into that little sweet shop, eh? Well, instead of a guard dog, they've got this bloody great big bangle tiger i managed to take out the tiger with a can of mace but the shop owner and his son that's a different story altogether i had to beat them to death with their own shoes nasty business really but sure enough i got the m&ms and ozzy went on stage and did a great show i slipped in an old fielding about halfway i noticed that, that. <laughs> and just kept going uh i'm good also, not even a quote from this movie. <laughs> no, no, no. And I we haven't even introduced the movie yet, but there's a character played by... An, so I, I did a quote from an actor who is in this movie in another movie. And as soon as I heard the voice, I was like, oh, okay, I know who that is. I've seen him in yeah. nothing else, but that yeah. voice instantly zeroed in on Absolutely. Well, it is new to two week, meaning that Nicole has picked a movie that neither myself nor David have ever seen before. Before we introduce it, however, we are going to introduce next week's movie so you can follow along. It is Prime Flix Roulette, formerly Netflix Roulette, where you can watch whatever it is on Prime or Netflix um, as part of your subscription. You don't have to rent it. So we spun the wheel and the wheel spit back out at us. Wall Street Money Never Sleeps. Again, that is the 2010. Wow, it's been 10, 11 years yeah. on that. Um, the sequel, 
the long-awaited sequel. Was it long-awaited to Wall Street? Wall Street 2, Electric Boogaloo. Yes. Yeah, I, I as soon as, like, I know we all agreed upon it uh, before the hand, but then as soon as Brett said it officially, I was like, oh, really? We picked that one? I know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's like half the movie is just like, like shots of Gordon Gecko being like, what is this iPhone? Because um, spoiler, David, who has not seen the first one, he goes to prison. Oh, yeah, so, I, know, I know that much. Yeah. But hey, we're we're going to talk about capitalism next week. Be sure to join us and follow along if you feel so inclined. But this week, a 1987 film from Nicole with Nal and I. At the end of 1969, two out-of-work actors in London share destitution, an ancient apartment in a squalid kitchen, and a longing for acting jobs. They spend their days getting high, drunk, and frustrated. To break out of their cycle, one suggests to the other that he call his wealthy uncle and ask to use his cottage in the countryside. As they scrape out a holiday, their relationship begins to change. Uh, Nicole, I had never actually heard of this film before and then realized that this is not just in the Criterion Collection because it's good, but also because this is widely considered one of the greatest British films of all time by all those fancy lists and critics. So you must have had a good reason for bringing this to David and I. Well, it's it's considered one of the better cult comedies of all time. It tends to appeal to a perpetually younger crowd as well as with the original fans. Their fans can be really diehard. You know, I watched some interviews on the extras of the disc. They talk to people who've seen the film dozens of times and can quote every line from memory. And the actors get yelled at on the street on a regular basis. Like they say at least once a week, still now 30 something years later, some line or another from the movie. And uh, I wanted to take a look at it because I, I saw it a while ago and I enjoyed it, but there were, there's part of this film that I don't think ages particularly well. And I wanted to take another look at that with more modern lenses. And I don't know. I mean, I wanted to pick it apart and see what you two thought about what it's, what its value is and if you actually think it's funny. <laughs> I certainly so. showed my age when I messaged in our Slack. Is that Mr. Dursley? Uh, <laughs> oh, I mean, that's, that's, what, that's what I know him from too. I, I mean, he's not particularly a well-known actor here in America. I should say, I mean, he obviously has his career over in England. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know him from anything else aside from the Harry Potter movies. And now this. Yeah. Well, let's dive into our discussion topics. We have a bevy of them for our discussion today. Uh, this movie has a cult status in England of a similar flavor to Dazed and Confused here in the U.S., with fans seeing it dozens of times, like Nicole said, yelling popular lines to actors on the street. What do you think the draw is? Dazed and Confused is an interesting parallel because, like, one thing I noticed about this movie is that it's funny in, in a circumstantial way, and it's funny because the writing is so witty. Um, but there aren't like jokes and that's kind of what dazed and confused is, <laughs> is like dazed and confused is not, they're not outwardly making jokes. It's just the circumstances of these wacky kids partying and 
the weird 40 year old Matthew McConaughey hanging out with them. <laughs> I don't know. Like I understand the parallel that you're making. Yeah. I, th- I mean, there's not a lot of plot to it really. Right. But it's something that people will, will watch over and over again for some reason, you know? So I'm just wondering if, if you felt like you had a handle on why people might get so attached to this one. I think part of it is the cynicism of the characters of, of with Null, with Nail, especially there is something very British about their uh, perpetual, I don't want to say like depression, but melange, the ennui that they are constantly exuding throughout this film, uh, which I know I'm saying it's British and then I'm using French terms to try and describe, but the French, <laughs> the French put, put it best for these kind of things, really. Uh, I think there is something from a, a younger standpoint, somebody who like knew actors and spent a little bit of time, I don't want to say like I did acting, I did acting in high school, I've done more like improv than I've done acting, but from the people that I've hung out with in that world, like these characters have that kind of true to life feeling and there's something romantic about it when you're younger. And now like, as I'm getting older, I'm like, you're insufferable (laughs) to (laughs) be around. And that's kind of the dazed and confused thing too. Right. Yet I'd want to have a drink with them. Like I'd want to know these people to talk with uh, and listen to them talk, but then go away from them and not have them in my everyday life. (laughs) I think you're on to something there because I, I guess the one difference if you want, we'll use Days and Confused kind of as our perpetual example here, I guess. But like that movie's also, it's more like coming of age. It's more, it plays on a level of nostalgia that people had for their youth of just being able to have nights like that. This movie's decidedly much more misanthropic. <laughs> like, oh, absolutely. <laughs> it isn't the exciting night that, you know, Days and Confused would try to be. But there, I can imagine that there are probably... I mean, there's an entire scene in the movie where Morty is just rhapsodizing about how they're, they're, in, they're in the last place of beauty in the world as the world shifts around him and everything's changing and becoming worse than it was. And considering it's a movie that takes place 20 years before it came out... There's probably some romanticization of the the late 60s and what that was. Oh, well, I mean, you have a conversation towards the end with the, the character who's actor in another movie playing largely the same character I quoted. But Danny talks about how uh, like they're selling they're selling hippie wigs in stores now. And like the greatest decade on Earth is ending and, and you know, blah, 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 all this stuff. Uh, says the very extreme stoner that really like, I think that does come a little bit of like, Oh, it's the end of the sixties and the sixties were just like this time of like culture and and people finding themselves and like, what's the seventies going to be mostly disco. He wasn't wrong that they were losing (laughs) something going into the seventies, but (laughs) you'll come around to a fresh appreciation for disco at some point. Trust me. Oh, I'd never lost an appreciation for Death Go. No, don't get me wrong. I, I think that's where we're landing, though. You know, the people who saw this the first time it came, you know, when it originally came out, they've got nostalgia for this movie, maybe also for the time period, but this is something that they saw in the movie theater and they carry with them and still like. But I think the younger people who are attracted to this movie can empathize with the poverty 
uh, <laughs> of the main characters. You know, they're living in a what in the U.S. would be college housing, where it's a big house, but it's a really old house, and stuff's falling apart, and there's makeshift things everywhere, and nobody's done the dishes in probably like six weeks, and they're things alive now that in the sink under things there's matter to be dealt with here and there and everywhere yeah get it with the pliers no 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 gloves keep the gloves that's right put on the gloves don't attempt anything without the gloves Uh, what is it what have you found matter matter Where's it coming from? Don't look. I'm dealing with it. I think we've been in here too long. And that's how college apartments can get. You know, they can be in real houses, but they tend to be, you know, old and falling apart and way more people put into them than there there were. And this is based... Yeah, than there should be. And this is based on uh, writer-director Bruce Robinson's actual experience as a, a struggling actor at the end of the 60s. And he shared a house with 14 roommates and only three bedrooms and slept on a mattress next to the bathtub. So, you know, he's, he's familiar with this struggle. So that he wrote this when he was pretty young. And I'm not sure, you know, he was older and wiser when he made it. But when, it was, when he started writing it, this was fresh in his mm-hmm. mind. And he had a friend who was quite like... Withnall, who thought a great deal of himself, but never actually made it anywhere. Yeah. Also, somehow it's they're struggling and terribly poor and barely have anything to eat, but they always have money for drugs. Always, yeah, and drinks. They always <laughs> find and money drink. to drink. Yeah. I think there's something too with these characters being in their twenties now, like at the end of a decade where they were probably like in their teens to early adulthood through most of the sixties. And the world is your oyster at that point. You know, even when you're sleeping on a, on a mattress next to a bathtub, it's just like tomorrow I could be sleeping in a palace. Like that's just like kind of like that feeling that always, especially like as an actor, it's like, all I need is my one big break, which that those words never get said, but that's kind of the feeling for withnal, especially like, I'm just one roll away from everybody knowing my name sort of thing. And, and then you get to like the end of the the sixties, the end of the decade, and you realize that all of your dreams haven't come true. And you're now in your twenties. And that means that eventually you're going to be in your thirties and Oh God, what if your dreams don't come true by then? It's just, it's a very shifting time that can uh, be for, for people like this uh, for one of them, you know, gets a a nice break. It's not necessarily his big break. It's very, he gets the lead role, whatever that means, but something's on the upswing for one of them at the end of this decade. And the other one is just existing. And I really do appreciate the way this film does tackle that aspect of poverty with these characters, because it really captured it in a way. I don't think I've ever seen in a film similar to this where Everything from their the antics of their shoes falling apart to their clothes that they're constantly having issues with and then the surrounding, the way they set dress this hellhole apartment that they've completely destroyed is 
really fantastic and just in capturing that. And you actually feel like anxiety in this movie about whether or not they're going to eat. Like <laughs> I haven't felt that in a movie and you see them eating and you're like, oh, good, you got a hot dog because it, you, they really don't know where their next meals are coming from. And uh, though they have money for drugs and drink, and I just think this movie captures that really well. And then later on, it does play it into a comedic effect where like not only are they not equipped financially to deal with being in the countryside and trying to get what they need, but they also just don't know how to do anything. Um yeah. And I think that plays into it in a unique way as well. And I mean, let's just go ahead and talk about the chicken. The chicken. Uh, <laughs> That's my favorite part. <laughs> because even he just sits it like a little human. <laughs> yeah. Before, before we even talk about the chicken. Yeah. That's the part I want to talk about is just like, these guys don't know how to cook a chicken, let alone other things that we'll, we'll get to when they have to, to, you know, really fight for their food. But it's like, okay, well, we'll just put it in here and uh, stand it up, and I'm just like, okay, put some salt on there, like throw some butter at it or something, like douse it in oil. This thing's gonna be just like just so bland. Well, anyway, let's talk about the fact that they have to kill a chicken. No, it's not your appetite. Looking at it, no, it doesn't. I'm starving. How can we make it die? We've got to throttle them. I think you should strangle it instantly in case it's not trying to make friends with us. All right, get hold of it. You hold it down, and I'll strangle it. I mean, they don't get enough off that chicken in terms of like pre-existing flesh slash feathers. No. There's just, it's too prickly when they put it in the oven. You know, they beg some wood and food off a local farmer. They go out to this cottage way in the countryside. They go to Penrith, which is like 20 miles from the Scottish border. They accidentally go on holiday. We've gone on holiday by mistake. It's my favorite. Let's put yes, my hair. It's almost three hundred miles from London. Yeah, <laughs> just, you know, they beg a chicken off a farmer and get it given to them alive. It's and it's, you know, they know what they have to do, but they're just absolutely not competent at anything, really. Mm-mm. And uh, they know they have to get the feathers off of it, but they don't bother to to get like all the feathers off and they don't take any of the innards out as far as I can tell. And they just sit it on a brick in the oven, which they had to figure out how to light. And which is before he tried to shove it into a tea kettle. Yes. Yes. (laughs) It's because it's the only cooking vessel he could find. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just, you know, I've met a couple of, people and i hate to be the stereotype perpetuator but it's it invariably guys who don't know literally don't know how to cook like the most basic things and i mean thank goodness you can look up on your phone now mm-hmm. you know how to cook a chicken or how to cook steak or how to i don't know how to make potatoes in whatever way and you can look that up now immediately but you know they don't even have yeah, like that the tiniest bit of knowledge. Yeah. You know, at the end of the 60s. But they also don't care to learn. Well, I think it's that. I think it's the end of the 60s and mothers were still considered to be the heads of housekeeping in the house and the boys weren't expected to need to know how to look after themselves, really. Mm-hmm. Um, they were expected to go out and get jobs and be able to, you know, buy pre-prepared food or go to the pub every night to get their dinner. But it's just 
they're so uh, I agree with you that these are people that would be kind of fun to hang out with for an evening or maybe two evenings, but you wouldn't want to see them on a daily basis because oh, they're wow. convinced of their their impending importance in the world and yet they know nothing about the most basic life skills. Though to Paul McGann character's credit, like he is he's more grounded. Yes. Like he's the one that says, do not drink the lighter fluid, Um, which I love that they put vinegar in that when uh, Grant was expecting water to get that reaction from him. Good. That's evil. And then he says, you've got antifreeze, haven't you? (laughs) And you know, the grounded one says, you fool, you should never mix your drinks. (sighs) Right. Right. That's the issue. Yeah. But I mean, he is, (laughs) I never, totally get the vibe that this is a codependent related no kidding (laughs) i never totally get the vibe that mcgann's character thinks of himself as nearly to to any degree as important as withnall does about himself not not as important well except for when they're drinking he suddenly becomes very much like withnall but there still is something about about him that makes him seek. I mean, he is so depressed. Uh, I was surprised to hear a steel guitar in a British movie. Uh, there's like a scene where he's shaving in the bath and there's like a, a that bluesy steel guitars playing. And I was very surprised, but it's, he's seeking. I'm reading maybe a bit into, into characters and I'm projecting people I know, but I think there's a little bit of him that is seeking that validation in acting. Interesting. Speaking of that music, really all an interesting hodgepodge. Uh, this movie opens on like a two and a half minute lethal weapon esque saxophone solo, um, which I was listening to like four rooms away from my fiance and she was teaching remotely and all of a sudden texted me. And she's like, what's with the uh, smooth jazz? I'm like you can you can hear that from here. That's my girlfriend. Asked the question. She was like, "Why is a that whiter shade of pale?" No, I know it's. I know it's a whiter shade of pale. Um, it's a it's a smooth jazz version of whiter shade right. of pale. Right. Uh, but yeah, this Which movie is, is not ton- how it should be played. <laughs> God no. Um, this movie has a ton of like. I mean, it's not even just the Procol Harum. It's like. Like so, the, there's a Beatles song in there, and one of the weirdest shots where they when they finally get home after their holiday, and uh, what is the what is the guy's name that Danny's with? Oh, it's a, oh, uh, a, uh, pr- uh, something Ed. Presuming Ed. Presuming Ed. Ed. So presuming Ed just is like this this big dude is just like chilling in their bathtub and says nothing except when he's giggling and like humming later on, but he's just chilling in their bathtub when they get home and it's playing while my guitar gently weeps. And, um, which is a George Harrison song. And this movie was produced by George Harrison's production company. He was the executive producer, same company that did time bandits. So throwback to a much earlier episode of ours. So, surprisingly good success for a company that only produced like three or four movies at least two of them to my knowledge are cult classics but it was kind of funny the first of all hear the beatles music because they're notoriously they were notoriously impossible to license that's why up until michael jackson's death you didn't really hear 
them in like car commercials or anything like that. And now you hear them everywhere or they weren't even on iTunes back in the day. Uh, but you can get it when George Harrison is there. And there's a couple other just excellent selections of late sixties music that are perfectly emblematic of the time they're living in primarily the, the Jimi Hendrix stuff. Mm. They pulled some great Jimi Hendrix tracks from this all along the watchtower and a couple others. But I just, I, I thought that was a great element of the film. And I just love George Harrison's weird film production career where like he funded a ton of this, just like he did time bandits. I don't know why <laughs> there's not a lot of info out there as to why George Harrison felt compelled to fund rather weird films, but like Ringo showed up on set yeah, maybe he was friends with Bruce Robinson. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Uh, but, but Ringo showed up on set, and Nicole, as you called out in our Slack earlier, he then gets a, a shout out in the uh, the credits as Richard Starsky, of course. And then also, weirdly, like Peter Frampton, before being Peter Frampton, was a makeup artist on this movie. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. So like before he had a music career, he was a makeup artist, and he was hired as part of this movie's crew. Like, here, go make Withnell look like he's been up for 37 hours. And- oh, my God, the eyes. <laughs> the eyes. Yeah, it's really weird because, you know, Richard E. Grant is like 65 now and looks about the same as he did in this movie <laughs> because he looks just so a man who's only touching 30 but has a, been abusing himself for well over a decade, probably at this point in his life. Um, yeah. Various substances. Yeah, because he has that whole conversation with Danny where he's like, whatever drug you can take, I can take two of. You wouldn't spike me. You're too mean. Besides, there's nothing invented I couldn't take. If I medicined you, you'd think a brain tumor was a birthday present. I could take double anything you could. Very, very foolish words, man. And then when they have the giant... Uh, joint at the end he quickly reveals that no he cannot uh, <laughs> right. as he falls on the ground carrots. laughing okay. yes oh carrots huh we want to talk about carrots with this movie because they come yeah. up a couple times <laughs> oh they are a, what is it like a magnificent mystery or something like that yes um, firm young cat so before before we go down into the monty rabbit hole because that's a whole separate discussion i, I, I want to stick on yeah. with Nal just for a moment because we're talking about him so much i mean he's in the name of the movie <laughs> sure <laughs> uh this movie to me one of the reasons i could see it transcending into cult legend and also with Nal in particular as a classic character is because to me like we all know a with Nal, and maybe they're not quite as intense as him but we all kind of know that person because here's the here's the crazy thing about like these characters despite being inept at you know their basic household functions they're very well read like this movie ends with a hamlet soliloquy like they're they're incredibly well read they they know their stuff at least one of them is is educated and there is that aspect of withnall where it's like he's just self-destructive and substance abusing and diving deeper into that hole and everyone around him sees that there's something up but no one's but you can't help him if he doesn't want to help himself, which he doesn't in the movie. Mm. And everyone kind of knows someone like Withnall. And also keep in mind that same person also thinks that they're above their surroundings and whatever is happening to them and their circumstance in life. And Withnall certainly thinks that as well. I just, I think it's a very, very relatable archetype. Absolutely. It's, it's the character who's, you know, very full of themselves and yet cripplingly insecure. 
mm-hmm. in some ways. You know, this is this is a man who's an actor because he hates himself. Mm-hmm. I think. I can see um, that because he he desperately wants to be somebody else. But he's created this character to be in the meantime because he doesn't. I think he's he's scared of who he is as a a real person. What what he would be like if he didn't project this this image of himself into the world. Yeah, and then and then you have also I think is a very real and relatable moment for the two of them at the end where it's like okay this is it for our friendship probably like we'll see each other around but like he knows if I'm not living with you. I'm not going to be seeing you all the time. And, and my God, why would I uh, look at, look at yourself? I, I, I did find that whole, like, there just comes a point where, you know, I have these, I've had these people in my life as well. It's like, Oh, I'm moving on to my next chapter. I'm, I'm going to move into this new apartment or I'm going to move to this new place, or I'm just going to go to like, do this. You just have this sense. Like there's some people when you do that, like I'm losing my connection to you. And that yeah. happens. Yeah, that's a great point. I think he's also the art, the artistic martyr of like, you know, he seems to just have a, a constant flirtation with suicide and smoking like his life depends on it and drinking everything he can get his hands on. And certainly I've known people like that, you know, that just they, they are the tragic artist in their own mind. And he thinks he is. And which, which is even more interesting because on top of all that, and this I think is further layered with, and you can tell I went to art school because I know a lot of people that think they're with Null, millennials in, in private art school in Chicago. He has a well-to-do family like that would presumably help him. Like He doesn't even have to necessarily live like this, but he chooses this lifestyle. Well, I mean, he makes noises in the vein that like almost none of his family will talk to him anymore. Yeah. That he's been sort of, uh, if not disowned, at least he's the black sheep of the family. Yeah. And so the only other person who will talk to him anymore is his gay uncle, who presumably is also ostracized by most of the family. And with that, let's talk about Monty. Um, (laughs) Segway. Here we go. (laughs) Mr. Dursley. Yeah. So I actually thought that was it for Monty. (laughs) When we see him and they... They go and they get his key to the cottage and Withnall lies to him about all the amazing roles he's getting and does so just, you can tell it that he's very comfortable in that lie. He has been telling Monty this lie for God knows how long. Mm-hmm. And Monty shows up. Like, I, I, I didn't expect that. I really didn't. And is really like the only other character for the whole movie. <laughs> like, there's three main characters. Yeah, other than Danny the dealer. You know, well, it's, Danny it's the Withnall, dealer. it's... It's I, you know, who's uh, Marwood in the script, but his name is never referenced. They just have a name in the script. So Paul McGann would know whose lines to read. And it's Richard Griffiths as Uncle Monty. And then it's Ralph Brown as Danny the dealer. And that that's pretty much it. And then there are little side characters that pop up here and there. But they're the, it's, it's almost entirely those two. And then Uncle Monty and a little bit of Danny. Yeah, I, I similarly was like, oh, okay, this is just like a, a little scene just to kind of give us some character depth. And then, all right, we're never going to see him again. And then, nope, oh, there he is. And yep, becomes a, of the night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's one of the better scenes of the movie, in my opinion. Yeah, when they're in bed and they, because they encounter Jake, who's the poacher <laughs> of the village, who just like <laughs> finds various things for people. By various things, I mean animals. Uh <laughs> And they have an encounter that leaves them thinking, 
oh, he wants to kill us because uh, they spot him because he's like, I'll bring you a rabbit or something next week. And they, of course, with Nall being like, no, I don't want a rabbit. I want a pheasant. Uh, it's like, meet my demands. And they take that as, like, oh, okay, Jake is going to now try to kill us because they then see him around the house. But really all he wants to do is just give you a, a rabbit. By them nailing it to the door frame. <laughs> I mean, they would see it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's true. They, they He wouldn't sell them the eels down his pants, but he'd bring them a rabbit next week. So. Oh, Jake. Yeah. I mean, like you said, this is the circumstantial comedy of this movie, is that the poacher just walks into the bar, swills down a whiskey, and... uh Pulls a live eel out of his pants, looks at it, and then stuffs it back in there. <laughs> yeah. Pulls a pheasant off his back from under his shirt like it's a like it's a hump. You know, gives it to the barman. And uh Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of good characters like that. Like the you know, these these characters that show up just for bits and pieces in the in the town. You have the 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 bartender who is, you know, convinced that that with knowledge is a vet and uh, and he plays into that mm-hmm. and then you have the uh the farmer who has had a run-in with a bull yep. so his leg is all wrapped up and then you have that that tea scene or i guess it's like a tea shop what a scene that that i think to me that is the greatest scene of the movie and when i looked it up later i understood that that seems to be the most quoted scene of the movie um, when they both drunkenly stumble into a tea shop and with is like, we want the finest wines available to humanity. We want them here and we want them now. <laughs> and, yep. and all these people just think that, you know, vagrants have stumbled in and for all intents and purposes, they have. Yeah. The other youngest person in there is probably about 65. Right. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're in this sleepy little village where everything closes down in like midday and mm-hmm. uh, you know shortly after tea time and yeah they're coming in there like even the bar is you know closing on them and so of course with Mel's like well you have to make up for lost time then so you know give us like six more drinks and they come in and just uh really really make their mark but this movie isn't quite a series of vignettes but it has some vignette scenes in it I uh, like you to, I really enjoyed the scene in the bar, like the, the barman that he convinces, you know, he's a vet and th- that whole thing for some reason was like, was just very amusing to me. I, I did enjoy those because there were moments where I was like, especially early on, I'm like, okay, what is like the movie about? And you key into that more as it goes on, but it was not in the same way of like, oh, it's just them going around doing things. But I did very much enjoy when they went around just doing things. It took me probably to your point, like 40 minutes to kind of fully get on board with what this movie was, which, which was that, that circumstantial comedy that doesn't have a lot of jokes written into it. There's very barely a plot. And he, and even the comedy itself is not really laugh out loud comedy. It's just, it's so witty that you can't help but chuckle a little bit at it. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a unique brand of comedy that took me a hot minute to figure out whether or not I liked it. And I, and I ended up really enjoying it. And I think it is because of the compelling relationships in the movie. And I know we kind of danced back away from Monty, but like he, he certainly adds a third layer to that. You can't have films about nothing in particular without having these compelling characters. You know, David, you made that point in our docket and, and you're totally right. Like we've had these movies that we've talked about where they live or die purely on the chemistry. And these two have wonderful chemistry. Absolutely. 
So Monty, uh, Monty shows up. Uh, let's start with this. Writer director Bruce Robinson insists that he is in no way homophobic. Does this film bear him out? How do we feel about Uncle Monty at the end? So Uncle Monty shows up at the, at the the cottage a couple days later. Right. Breaks in in the middle of the night, and he's there because he really wants to make a move on uh, with Nall's friend on Marwood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And th- well, Withnail, unbeknownst to Marwood, Withnail's right. been dropping hints that Marwood's interested in him, and that's how he got the key to the cottage in the first place. Mm-hmm. Not just dropping hints that he's interested, but dropping hints that he is um, closeted, professionally interested in him. Uh, there's a a phrase that I've never heard used before, but is pretty clear to me what the meaning is where he says you told him i was a toilet trader yeah that was a presumably one. means that he trades sexual favors in toilets for money right right that's how um, i also took it yeah so i think monty felt free to do so and i don't think he was doing it whether or not this possibly straight man was interested he was going to hurl himself at him but he He thought, one, that he was also gay, and two, that he was a sex worker and would be willing to do it for pay, if not for pleasure. Yeah, yeah, because it gets to, like, even when uh, Marwood says, like, no, I don't want to do that, he's like, oh, come on, you do. Right. It's very, because there's a scene early on when, or not early on, it's it's fairly late in the movie, but before the bedroom scene, there's a scene of them downstairs. And I thought for a moment, like, oh, okay, Monty has heard him that he is not interested and is letting him go to bed. And then he follows him up to bed and a very uncomfortable scene begins there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I also, there. I think there's also another element where there's a line in the movie where um, uh, Marwood, I keep forgetting his name because... It's not in the movie uh, where Marwood mentions to, to, to Withnall that like Monty thought he was like deep in the closet and afraid of who he was. And Monty kind of comes in as like this experienced hand to say like, hey, it's OK. You are what you are. You mustn't blame yourself. I know how you feel and how difficult it is. And that's why you mustn't hold back. Let it ruin your youth as I nearly did over Eric. It's like a tide. Give in to it, boy. Go with it. It's society's crime, not ours. And like at the beginning of that, it's like, okay, maybe Monty's not picking up on signals and it's freaking me out a little bit because he's getting this, you know, he's getting a little close for comfort, but maybe there's an element of of him trying to connect with another person that he thinks might be having internal strife. And, And then he... Then he doesn't. Then he goes bad. Um, <laughs> then he does things he shouldn't do. Couldn't we allow ourselves just this one moment of indiscretion? No, he need never know. I don't care what he knows, Monty. You've got to go. You've got to leave. If you want to humiliate me, humiliate me. I adore you. Tell him if you must. I no longer care. I mean to have you, even if it must be burglary. Yeah, that line particularly yeah. made me uncomfortable. He corners him. He corners him. Like, like at this point, he has he has yeah. ripped the blanket off of him as he's running away. And the movie seems to allude to him just exposing himself to Marwood as Marwood is 
cowering in a corner. Mm-hmm. And the only way Marwood's able to get out of it is to make up this elaborate lie about how, okay, actually me and Withnal, we are partners. We've been partners forever. This is the first night we haven't slept together in forever. And and he's the one that's deep in the closet and doesn't want to tell you. And then Monty gets gets off from like the <laughs> It's such a weird like five minutes. I'm trying to figure out the best way to tactfully talk about it <laughs> because he goes from cornering him. It's complicated. He goes from cornering him and almost sexually assaulting right. him to being like, that's really sweet. And I'm like, what? what is this emotional roller coaster we're on? Yeah, I think it's obvious. This is the scene that doesn't age well in this film. And I, I think originally when I first saw this movie, I found... It partly funny and partly a little uncomfortable, but I couldn't pin down why. And watching it again the other night, I'm I actually find it kind of heartbreaking in a way that Uncle Monty is of this generation that completely romanticizes his school days because it was the only time where he was in an environment where it was all boys and there was this tacit understanding between him and his friend you know and there was opportunity to find out through various quiet channels on which other males might be of his same orientation and he the whom he might be able to connect with but now that he's older, his opportunities are waning. And even though it's the sixties and it's a more permissive era, he still feels like he needs to be closeted for the most part. It's this whole generation that I feel badly for, but I don't want to let him off the hook completely. He should back off when Marwood says, no, very tired. I'm not interested. And he's, pushes that aside at first because he thinks that that's not true, that he's just in denial. And maybe he feels in a way like he's, I don't know. I don't know if he's misguided and feels like maybe he's helping this, right. this boy accept who he is. Cause he leaves them a note when he leaves and, and says like, I hope you can find yeah. the happiness that I never had. And, and like, that's where he's just a complicated character because I really, I don't know. Go ahead, Nicole. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, it's it it is it's it's uncomfortable, but it's also really sad in a way. And he totally accepts the story that Marwood and Withnail are a couple and haven't spent a night apart for six years now. And he he completely buys it, and he his heart kind of melts at the story that it's this, you know, it's this tragic love affair that needs to be hidden from society and when will society change? And it's, uh, (laughs) and you just know that Monty's going to go off and he's going to spend the rest of his life alone, Mm -hmm. you know, yelling at a cat. And yeah, you might get a cat. He's got a cat. He's got a cat. He yells at it a lot. He's got a badly behaved cat. Yeah. (laughs) And, but, and he lives in this, you know, very uh, meticulously kept lovely home. So many Mm -hmm. plants. But the, Right, but alone. And it's sad because this was the state of the world for a lot of both gay men and women of the time. And it's, 
oh, it just makes me sad. And I mean, not that the world is perfect now, but at least it is in at least some parts of most countries, <laughs> there are places where people can be themselves and be wholly who they are, mm-hmm. and be able to love who they want to love. And I am so glad for that. To that, to that end, when you're looking at Bruce Robinson and him saying that he is in no way homophobic, I think the film does bear him out in that regard because that is a complex character and he's capturing that really well. Um, there's homophobic characters in the movie. Um, yes. Like, like I, like, let's not let Marwood off the hook for immediately just being horrified that Monty is gay right. and wanting to get the hell out of there the second he meets him and F slurs all abound. But um, I don't know if I would throw Robinson in that camp. I don't know. I mean, it's it's much more sensitive than most films of the 80s, certainly, in some respects. And he does claim that Monty's pass at Marwood is similar to what happened to him. I can link an interview to you that's on YouTube uh, where Bruce Robinson tells the story of an encounter that he had in Franco Zeffirelli's hotel suite one night. Bruce Robinson played Benvolio in Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. And um, Franco Zeffirelli was a a larger-bodied gay male who made a pass at him in a a fairly similar fashion. So I think that's what he was drawing upon when he he wrote this scene. Ah. I don't know. Like I said, it's not as it's more sensitive than most movies of the time, but certainly not as clear as it could be because it certainly at first paints Uncle Monty as a, the predatory homosexual, mm-hmm. right? Who's out to find handsome young men, whether they're interested or not. Yeah. So, and that is a a homophobic element, I suppose, that you bring up. That there is like a a through line through like homophobic men. Of thinking like, oh my god, all the gay men want to sleep with me. And it's like, no, they don't. I know. There's so much ego bound up in homophobia. <laughs> right. And and I and I could see that that someone could look at this movie and say, okay, well, you wrote the one gay character as the guy that comes on to the straight man and can't take no for an answer. I, I could <laughs> see that being a little problematic and not not great. Because that is definitely a through line with amongst people that are homophobic. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's something just like on the small scale of this movie with how personal it is, you know, they spend so much time in this cabin. It, it's, uh, I think it's easy to get to that point where you can, where you can make that argument. Now, whether or not that was the intention or not, that's a whole different story. I don't necessarily think that it is, but author is dead. You know, how do we interpret it now here in a discussion? Yeah. It's a little bit different. Right, listen. <laughs> Uh, hi at mgrpodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, I want to ask you guys where you think someone like Withnall ends up. Hopefully not where the book Oof. assumes he ends up, because um, this is based loosely on a novel, and Withnall, in that version, pours Monty's wine into the barrel of the gun and then drinks from it in his mouth and pulls the trigger, which is a hmm. a horrific way to die. And also kind of on brand for the way his character acts. But they decided that that was too morbid for this movie. (sighs) That they didn't want to kill him. And I'm glad they made that decision. Right. 
So instead, he's reciting Hamlet in the rain to the wolves in the zoo. <laughs> to the wolves, to the urban wolves that are just like hanging out in the park. And by the way, like never has Hamlet been so applicable to a particular character because he is doing the, the monologue about, you know, losing your mirth. And uh, I'm trying to remember. It's uh... well, like the one man who would put up with him for any length of time has left. <laughs> right. Uh, oh, oh, um, what a piece of work is man. That's like the, the mm. iconic, you know, part of that of that monologue what a piece of work is a man how noble in reason how infinite in faculties how like an angel in apprehension how like a god the beauty of the world pagan of animals yet to me what is this quintessence of dust man delights not me no no women neither. No women neither. I'd like to believe that things get better for him, but I also don't think they will. This kind, this is the kind of person that spirals, and I feel like that's why he's so relatable. Yeah, it, he's the kind of character slash person that uh, you would hear years later, someone be like, oh yeah, they killed themselves. And you would be like, oh, that's so tragic. But also like have that feeling of like, well, it's not terribly surprising. Or they found him having the DTs in an alley and he had to be committed, you know, right? Yeah, because he, he drank lighter fluid <laughs> and then it right. freeze. Yeah, very so. willingly. Yeah, he's a sad character, you know, and and like I said, the man he's loosely based on, it, his career never really went anywhere either. I believe he died without ever, you know, really achieving what he wanted to. It's, um, yeah, it's very, I don't want to say, I don't want to say poetic. I guess dramatic is the word that I'm like, but that feels like, uh, I, I can't think of the word. Like I, I'm making light of like suicide. Like, Oh, it's so dramatic. But for somebody that is like dramatic like this, like that is the dramatic end in a, right. in a stage way, you know, as from a story perspective is what I mean, not necessarily. Or the dark meaning of right. romantic. Yes, that's exactly. And throughout the entire movie, he's, he's from the opening scenes. He's constantly talking about like, Oh, we will die out here. And just always flirting with his own death and, and certainly doing nothing to stop it from happening anytime soon. Right. Although he does have the inspired notion of rubbing himself all over with the British equivalent of Ben Gay to try to get warm in a cold apartment. <laughs> yeah. I do just want to call out because we haven't really mentioned it, uh, really mentioned this at all. But I think the fact that we're talking so much about with and like, obviously he's, he's the point of the movie. The movie's called with and I, but, uh, as great as Paul McGann is, and I love Paul McGann, I'll get into that in a second. Richard E. Grant, this is a powerhouse performance. I've I, never, I've seen him in a, you know a couple things, and I've never seen him act as strongly as he does in this film. He's a fantastic actor, but he's not traditionally handsome, so he didn't get a lot of lead roles. You know, he's always the character part, right, in a film when he's cast. Yeah, no, but he does a great. So job he here. did get one go. He was in. Uh, I don't know if there were TV movies or movies just released in Britain, but starring as the Scarlet Pimpernel hmm. uh, back in the 90s, which are pretty good. He was in Star Wars briefly, most recently. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
briefly, yes. <laughs> Very briefly, yeah. And I mean, now he's he's aged out of leading roles and is getting character bits, but he does a lot of voice work. He gets a good number of jobs. He gets steady work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not, not the first time we've seen him. He's also, you know, briefly in Logan. So Unlike with Null, he is uh, willing to do the smaller parts, but still does a lot with them. Yes. <laughs> right. So I, I suppose... Really quickly, I do want to call out that the reason I, I was already predisposed to love these two is because of Doctor Who, which is funny just because of how inherently British this movie is. This movie just seeps cynic Britishism. Is Britishism a word? It is Britishism. It's cynical British people. And because, of course, Paul McGann was kind of, in my opinion, robbed of having a, a lengthy tenure as the Doctor. You know, he is the ninth the eighth, I'm sorry, the eighth doctor. And he was a TV movie in the nineties. I highly recommend checking that out. He's an amazing doctor. But just never got the opportunity because he was right in between when they were rebooting the shows and it just wasn't the right time, but he's great. And also like Richard E. Grant is like one of the coolest doctor who villains of recent memory. Like he was in Matt Smith's first holiday special and was a terrific villain. So I highly recommend checking that out as well. It's the episode in which we're introduced to the companion, Clara, who hung around for like four seasons. So it's a big one. Oh, right. It's like Victorian London, and he's like messing with electricity, and he's wearing a cool hat. It's great. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's awesome in it. So like great British actors. At some point, they pass through Doctor Who. (laughs) That's kind of just the thing. Or Harry Potter, one of those. Right, right. Or, if not both, or both, yeah, probably right? both <laughs> cases. Um, all right, let's 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 end on Danny. <laughs> Danny the dealer. Yes, Danny's great. I, I think I mentioned in our chat earlier that I wish all the world's problems were just solved by Danny in his incredibly laid back manner. One of my favorite lines in the movie was, "Oh crap, I had it up and then I got rid of it." Um, it's him talking about hairdressers. It, <laughs> I'll pull it up. That your but hair you- is, gets signals from the cosmos. Yes, you don't want to cut your hair because it gets signals, yeah. I don't advise a haircut, man. All hairdressers are in the employment of the government. Hair are your aerials. They pick up signals from the cosmos and transmit them directly into the brain. This is the reason bald-headed men are uptight. What absolute twaddle. Yeah, yeah. But you mentioned, Nicole, like he, he does reprise his role briefly in Wayne's World 2, which David quoted at the beginning here. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's it's not exactly the same role, but he does the exact same voice and mannerisms. Oh, it's totally. Yeah. Yeah. When playing Del Preston, as he does here as Danny the Dealer and didn't really hit me is that it, they're only six years apart. Wayne's World 2 was 1993. You're right. Why do they feel they further <laughs> apart? It, I don't know. It just it felt like ages. Yeah, he also looks a lot older in the Wayne's World one. Yeah, yeah I mean does. they probably <laughs> they probably put some. Yeah, I think they put some like gray in his hair. Maybe he has gray in his hair, and they it just developed a lot in the intervening years. I don't know. All right, he's so effortless at playing Danny mm-hmm. as just this laid back guy who just lets these absurd ideas roll out of his mouth with utter confidence and apparently he was the people on set had a hard time not cracking up <laughs> at him delivering his lines um because he just did it with such such panache in a way oh yeah <laughs> and what i love about him is like the way he talks 
without contractions. Um, he says, like, this is the reason that they are uptight. Uh, just has this regal stoner vibe, which is just terrific. He's one of those people that, like, you you listen to his words, and you, you hear it, you take it, and you're like, everything you're saying is just utter crap. But yet the way that he says it, you're like, I don't know, is he right? Like, he's so... <laughs> He sounds like a guru. The legal document thing? Like, I half expected him to pull something out saying you don't owe rent. (laughs) Right. He's so sure in everything that he says. It's like, I don't know. Am I missing something? (laughs) That's how people get sucked into cults, man. That's true. (laughs) Say absurd stuff, but they say it so confidently and they repeat it so often that folks start to believe it. I've been in six cults just because I'm like, yeah, you sound like you know what you're talking about. Yeah, been there, done that. Ah, phew, I, I, I missed one Heaven's Gate meeting, and apparently, I don't know. Oh, God. It's a big, big deal. <laughs> kicked out of the club. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I also do, um, actually, let me back up here for a moment. Um, I'm going to cut this out because I totally forgot what I was going to say. I remember what I'm going to say. I'll now edit back. One other thing I wanted to mention is I was reading Roger Ebert's review from the time, and he he loved this movie, and he made an interesting observation that I think is right on the money, which is this movie captures being drunk better than any other movie, because the shit they say when they're drunk is so good and and i'm just talking about like how they feel about being drunk you know i feel like a pig shit on my head i can't my can't move my <laughs> thumbs why are my thumbs numb just like weird my thumbs have gone weird right my thumbs have gone weird <laughs> it's like incredibly bizarre stuff that's also like kind of like yeah people have been there <laughs> it's it's great well and the really gives you even more insight into how brilliant richard e grant is is that before this movie he he never drank right. and he, he has never drunk since he has an allergic reaction to alcohol. I don't know if it's like the enzyme thing or, or what it is, but he says he generally can't drink, but Bruce Robinson insisted that he get completely plastered at least once so that he'd at least know, you know, like really know what it felt like and not just observe. And he gets it perfectly. Because when people are drunk, they don't tend to be really like so sloshy and loose, but you can see them working hard to appear normal and not quite getting there. Right. Like they're trying really hard to not appear drunk, but you know, the fact that they're failing is how you can tell. Exactly. <laughs> that they're inebriated. And it's like, oh, I'm not drunk, officer. I've only had a few ales. <laughs> And can we talk about the unadulterated children's piss? The unadulterated children's piss, I think, is the last thing I need to mention here. I'd be I'd be remiss oh, if I did not mention <laughs> his his crafty way of getting out of a DUI is don't take the breathalyzer, don't answer any questions, but take the urine sample because he has what seems to be like this like turkey baster attached to a plastic funnel that with with a tube that he stuck down his pant leg so he can just wee out of that through his fly and give them quote unadulterated child well, piss. Not we. Not we. Putting the urine the clean urine from the bottle into right. the urine sample container right which he tries to do at the end of the movie like there's a callback to it like an hour and a half later yep it's Chekhov's predictably gets caught yeah Chekhov's fake pee I don't know what to call that thing (laughs) yeah so I I guess I I think a good way to end this discussion is to go back to the question Nicole posed at the very beginning which was is it funny like is this a comedy that holds up outside of its cult status 
I'll just go ahead and start. Once I kind of understood the shtick, yeah, it's so well written. This movie is incredibly well written. And there are lines here that I've only seen it once now, and I think I could quote, and I have a couple times in this podcast, because it's just... <laughs> That's a very unique aspect of it, and, and I really appreciate that about it. I understand the love for it, especially amongst actors and critics. This is kind of an actor's movie, in a way. You know, a movie without a lot of plot, but really good really good direction and really good relationships and writing. I understand why other actors are like, oh my God, with Null and I. That tracks for me. So, I, yeah, I actually thought it held up really well. I, I will say that their concern when filming it that some of the slang would go over the heads of Americans, I think is somewhat unfounded. Like, even if I don't directly understand what they're saying, I get it. (laughs) Yeah, you'll get it from context. If I've never heard the term or phrase before, it's contextual and I understand. And it's still funny or, you know, whatever they want it to be. So I don't think that necessarily bared out. Uh, David, what about you? First time. First time, I I really liked it. Um, It's not a movie that I could show everybody because I know a lot of people who would not like it because it just wouldn't appeal to them. But that's, I mean, that's fine. Not every movie has to. I was never really like bored with it. It's a movie we talked about like, well, not a lot of happens, but not in a way that's negative or in a way that I can really criticize the movie for. It's a character study. It is a chance for these great actors to do some great acting. And it has some lines that, uh, amused me greatly when I watched it, and it's fun now, like to quote them and laugh at them because that's what that's how it is with most quotes. Honestly, they're a lot funnier to talk about than they were actually like <laughs> in the film themselves. Uh, so I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a good movie. It reminds me, yeah. I think it's episode one hundred and one. I don't know why I remember that number as being it. I'm pretty sure it is. But if you go back and look at Paris, Texas, the film that I brought, at least in it kind of reminds me of Paris, Texas a little bit. Like you're, you could really hate this movie, just like you could really hate Paris, Texas. <laughs> there is a, there is a flavor and a tone and a listlessness that if it doesn't resonate with you, there's no convincing you otherwise. And I get that from Paris, Texas. Hmm. That one, you know, lives in its solitude because it is just like very lonely. Whereas this has that character dynamic between both of them. But I think that there's something to be said about those types of movies being kind of similar. A little bit. A little bit. I would say that this one, at least one character has some growth. By the end of the film, Marwood uh, both has gotten a, a good acting opportunity and I think has realized that he has outgrown with Null and that mm-hmm. it's not it's not healthy for him to be around him anymore and if he actually wants his career to go somewhere he needs to get away from him so i mean when he's heading to the train station and with nels like desperately says oh i'll walk with you he actually makes him stop partway and says no i i really don't want you to see me off you know he's he is ready to make the break with him now and doesn't want to deal with him any more than he has to anymore he knows if he goes to the train station. He says, I'll miss you, and I think that's true. Yeah. But he's he wants to go to the he wants to get to the train station by himself. He's ready to take that step on his own. And he doesn't want to be yeah. bu- I think he thinks too and, oh, go ahead, if he gets there that Withnall's going with him if he yeah, right. <laughs> Oh, that's that's also possible. He also it's the first time in the movie the man turns down a drink. Like he doesn't want to be inhibited by the devices yeah. that he has been bogged down by with 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 Null. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, he's made the visible change. He's cut his hair for the role because the part is a soldier. Right. Uh, in whatever it is that he's going to be in. And I mean, that that made me sad because Paul McGann had beautiful, lovely curls, you know, very like <laughs> Raphaelis kind of Renaissance angel kind of hair. Yeah. Uh, so it just made me sad. But <laughs> you know what? I'll, I'll make a pledge here on the podcast. I'll make a pledge here on the podcast because the only way I can ever get my love of Doctor Who onto this show is through a movie. And there's only one Doctor Who movie. I know you guys haven't seen it and you probably won't in the nope. next year and change or however long it takes me to get the new to two. I'll bring it at some point and we can get those luscious locks back. And they're even more luscious <laughs> okay. and longer because um, that is a fun, isolated microcosm of Doctor Who that we can talk about. Okay. Right on. Nicole, any closing thoughts on your pick? I think I'm trying to think of if I would still recommend this to people. I mean, I do think that it's funny in the sense that it's, as you said, Brett, it's, you know, it's witty and it's well-written, but it's not something you laugh out loud at very much. There are a few lines where you do like some of the stuff Danny says and the bit with the chicken, you know, <laughs> and when, but a lot of it are little gags that you just sort of internalize as you're watching. Like the fact that they keep wearing plastic bags on their feet when they're out in the country because their boots keep getting absolutely soaked because the ground is so wet all the time. So they're, you know, stomping around between their cottage and the the pub in their plastic bagged feet. They're running from the bull in their plastic bagged feet. And it's just this little touch that gets added in. It's not the sense of humor that appeals to everybody. No. I would, you know, I'd recommend Monty Python before this. I'd probably recommend, I'd recommend this to people who were either actors. Right. (laughs) Or people who were very well read, you know, because it's just sort of that philosophical bent, I want to say, to this movie. Is it pretentious? Yeah. With knowledge, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't know why that came to mind, but... Yeah, certainly some of the characters are. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think the movie itself is. It, I think it navigates it fairly well. I don't, no, I don't think this movie thinks that it's some grand statement on life. No. I think it's just, this is something that happened to me or is based on something that happened to me, and I hope that you enjoy it. I hope you find it entertaining. It's got a few things to say, but I... I don't believe it's meant to be some great statement on the world. Right. I agree. Very good. Well, I we're, we'll wrap it up for with Nal and I be sure to check it out. If you'd like to, uh, I guess we've already spoiled the entire movie for you, but there's not a lot to spoil. So you can definitely check it out. Uh, it's more in the delivery than, yeah. than exactly what's said. Exactly. But uh, next week, you're not going to want to miss it. Money never sleeps. Uh, the Wall Street sequel that no one asked for. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think it'll be a fun episode. I think there's plenty to talk about with this movie and the baggage it has. Uh, so check that out next week for Prime Flicks Roulette. But otherwise, let's go around the horn and see where we can find everybody online. David Luzader, what about you? Uh, I'm Davlos. That is D-A-V-L-U-Z. Uh, find me Twitter, Instagram. See what I'm up to there. Very good. And what about you, Nicole? I've actually been tweeting a lot lately so if you want you can follow me on twitter under at your word whiz y-o-u-r-w-o-r-d-w-h-i-z 
don't follow me if progressive ideas upset you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think they got that from the beginning of this show. <laughs> I'm pretty, yeah. <laughs> yes, very good. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. That is Brett with two T's and Stewart, S T E W A R T. But that'll do it for myself, David and Nicole. We will see you next week with Wall Street. Money never sleeps. <laughs>